Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the AIA Austin Committee on the Environment. The committee is committed to providing the architectural and construction community with fellowship and resources that help you deliver healthy, safe, and sustainable environments for people. There's nothing cooler than being dedicated to preserving the Earth's capability of sustaining a shared high quality of life. Check out more at AIAAustin.org. Welcome to this. Okay. Uh, welcome to the Building Science, to the building science podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here, as always, with my sidekick, Miguel. Hey, everyone. We're here live at the Hive Conference. So um, we're here today to talk about an interesting dimension of the uh, human technology interface. And what I'm referring to is the house as a technology to promote human health, human well-being, and I'm here with an indoor air quality expert from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Dr. Brett Singer. Please say hello. Hello. And uh, any more introduction you would like anyone to know about? What's your role at LVNO? So I am the group leader of the Indoor Environment Group, and I'm also a member of the Residential Building Systems Group, which focuses on energy, kind of the intersection of energy and air quality. And then in, in your environment, we do work in all kinds of buildings, so residences, commercial buildings. Right. We also do a lot of work on pollutant exposure, how pollutants move through the environment, how they wind up in our bodies, sources, et cetera. Wow. So you can yeah, see why we fun, want to talk to him. Fun stuff. So you work with some luminaries or people that I know of, right? Like, is Max Sherman there? Max Sherman Ian has Walker. recently retired, but oh, I, got really? to, I got the pleasure of working with Max for quite a number of years, and, and, and he's still bouncing around the community. Uh, he does a lot of work with ASHRAE, mm-hmm. uh, so he uh, travels and um, consults, and, and, and we still get some of his time here and there. But uh, old Max yeah. Sherman. And then the uh, Ian Walker. Ian you- Walker is uh, working very closely with Ian. He's... Uh, world-leading building scientist and a pretty good uh, rock musician as well. Uh, yes, and um, and a great colleague, so we work yeah. closely. And then Woody's there, Woody Delp. Woody Delp is a tremendous research engineer. Yeah, he's one of the most uh, broadly talented people I know in the business. That's awesome, he, you're finding compliments. He does simulations. Oh, it's easy. These guys are great. He uh, does simulations, experimental work. He's a... He, he grew up doing HVAC. His dad was an HVAC installer, so he's been doing this his whole life, basically. Oh, that's so awesome. he brings this tremendous mix of real-world experience, um, really good mechanical sense, uh, but also uh, understands the theory and really good tools on the analysis. Uh, does great visualizations. I could spend a whole hour talking about what he's telling That's us. awesome. All right, let's move it, move it forward. So I'm... Um, we just did a seminar together here, a workshop together, and you brought up the, the Corsi code. Do you think you remember those numbers well enough to go through those, or the ballpark of those? You, you were referring to the numbers that came out of the National NHAPS, what is that? National <laughs> Human Activity Pattern Survey. Look, the numbers are not so critical. The basic idea is that we spend most of our time indoors. I think people know that intuitively. Just think about what you did today or yesterday or the day before. And for most of us, most of that time was spent indoors. Yeah. The single place where we spend the most time indoors is, of course, our home. Mm-hmm. Although if you, depending on your job, if you 
you know, work a lot, your office may compete with that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Or if you uh, work from home, it's definitely... Or if you work from <laughs> home. But So it's something like 90% of our time inside enclosed spaces. Wow. Uh, some small fraction of that is transportation. As I mentioned today, if you live in L.A. or a place with a lot of traffic and you have a long commute, uh, you, you could actually spend 10% of your time uh, commuting in, in your vehicle, right? But normally because it's like 7%. It's, it's, it's maybe 5% or something on average across the, uh, the population, but it varies a lot from person to person. But your home uh, could be 60 70% of your time could be spent inside your home, okay? And it could be even, depending on your situation, even more than that. So that, that's, that's the environment where you're spending most of your time, most of the air that you're breathing is inside your home. So even for outdoor air pollutants, the place where you take in more outdoor air pollutants than any other places, for for a lot of people, is in your home. Now, again, depending on your situation, it might be while you're commuting or uh, if your office, if you're spending a lot of time in the office, but, but the home is a really important environment for your exposure to potential health relevant right. contaminants. So things like ozone, combustion exhaust, those you're breathing those outdoor pollutants in your homes. Yeah, no, ozone's a little or bit tell of Tell me what are you breathing? What ozone's you a little bit of a special case because uh, it reacts on the way in. Because yeah, basically ozone it reacts on the way in, it reacts with everything, uh, all the surfaces inside your house. So uh, if you have uh, no, most, you won't breathe it. Most no, people you can breathe it. Most people keep their windows closed. Okay, for a lot of the year. Interesting. Uh, there are places like Atlanta where I understand people keep their windows closed all year. I asked somebody when they opened their windows, and they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> uh, now, this is somebody with air conditioning. So if, you live, if, you, if you're uh, unfortunate enough to live in Atlanta without air conditioning, then you have bigger problems Definitely than, have windows open. <laughs> than, than pollutant exposure. Um, but uh, ozone is a special case because if you have your windows closed, and you have a you know, reasonable, reasonably tight house, even a modestly tight house, your ozone concentrations inside your house may only be 5 to 10% of what it is outdoors. Oh, okay. It could be even less than that. So okay? I brought up a wrong one. So, so ozone is not. Now, particle, particulate matter, we, uh, the, the term is PM 2.5. Okay, that's something that's coming up. Let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah, we'll go right into it. So PM, particulate, fine particulate matter is particles that are smaller than 2.5 microns in diameter. So if you think of little spheres, uh, PM... But they're not necessarily spheres. But they're not spheres. So PM10, <laughs> that's the model we have. PM10 are particles that we say are, quote-unquote, smaller than a 10-micron diameter. What we really mean is that it behaves like a sphere of 10 microns in mm. diameter, okay? Mm. And uh, and then the uh, PM2.5 is like a sphere. So it's the and, aerodynamic. And it could be aerodynamic or it could be optical. Uh, in the case of the regulations, it's aerodynamic. But the, the, the basic, the putting all that aside, the important <laughs> yes. point is a PM10 is stuff that you can kind of breathe in, right? So it gets, it will come into your body and it will deposit in your, in your nasal passages, your upper, basically upper respiratory. PM 2.5 gets down to the lower respiratory, so that's getting down to your lungs. Your alveoli. And, and then there's another, uh, yes, and get down there. And then there's another uh, category we call PM uh, ultrafine particles, which are particles smaller than 100 nanometers or 0.1 microns. And those are particles that not only get into your deep lungs, uh, they deposit all through your respiratory tr- system, basically, and they can actually move out of your respiratory system. Other particles can too, but they can move through 
through other barriers in your body that the bigger particles can't get through. So even like the blood-brain barrier, some of those ultrafine particles. Whoa. Uh, so Is those ultrafine particles, they have some different dynamics inside your body and also some different dynamics in the, uh, in the environment. Interesting. So what about the fine particles that can get down into my alveolar region? Yeah. What happens there? Do they just sit there inert forever? Do they interact? Or... Uh, they, they, they interact. That, that's not my area of expertise. So I can't tell you a lot about that. Um, but basically, it's a foreign substance that's in your body. Now, some of this stuff uh, would smoke, right? We, we've, we've been sitting around campfires for a long time, <laughs> okay, in, in terms of our uh, development as a, as a life form, right? So, yeah. so we're in some ways, our body is in some ways adapted to having those chemicals inside our body because we've been seeing them for a long time. Now, with a lot of things, your body is able to deal with some amount of these things and process and, and, and take that exogenous matter and, 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 and protect against it. And it's the problem is when we have too much of it for, for your body to kind of deal with. So uh, if it's sitting around a campfire a couple times a year, I, I think we're probably all, most of us are okay. If you have some kind of you know serious breathing or heart condition, then maybe not. But healthy, you know, healthy right. people, fine. Uh, we just I live in Northern California. We just had some about ten days of really bad wildfire smoke, yeah. and and the levels that we were breathing in day after day after day were definitely beyond the defensive abilities of of most of us. So there's we're going to see there is a. Uh, People, even healthy people, will be much more vulnerable to respiratory infection. That's again, like it's an effect that we see when there's really bad air pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could see the smoke in the air. Oh, it was it was apocalyptic. It was <laughs> it was Mordor for people who have a you know they're that reference from the Hobbit and Lord yeah. of the Rings and 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 it was they were literally in the mid afternoon. There was a couple of days where you couldn't see the sun was just a, a hint of brightness behind this. Wow grayness of the air pollution. It was really bad. Um, so th- anyway, all those particles, uh, they're outside, and they get inside at higher rates than the ozone. They, they come in at the same rates, but basically they don't get removed inside as quickly as the ozone. They will, they will deposit on the surfaces of your mm-hmm. house, uh, but to a much lesser extent. So um, in, I live in Oakland. In a lot of the old homes in the East Bay, uh, and even places like Sacramento, so the older homes were leakier. Those homes, uh, if they weren't running an air filter, uh, people probably had indoor concentrations that were 80% of the outdoor concentrations. Mm. Let's wow. say 80, 90, it could even be 90%, depending on how leaky the home is. It's a little lower, but it's not that much lower, mm-hmm. okay? Um, my home is uh, maybe a 10 to 12 ACH 50 because uh, we've had some air sealing retrofits done, um, and when we when we weren't running um, the uh, air purifier, we had a portable air purifier. It was it was maybe seventy percent or something of outdoors, okay. And then when we ran sixty to seventy percent, when we ran the air purifier, we bring that down a little bit more. If you take, uh, we did an experiment a few years ago in a uh, home in Sacramento. It was a two thousand six five ACH fifty year. Listeners will know what a 5ACH50 home is. Mm -hmm. So this is about a 5ACH50 home. I think it was 5ACH50. Maybe it was a little bit more. Uh, In that that ballpark, though, and running uh, an exhaust ventilation system at the code-required ventilation level, and I don't remember whether it was 2000 which code it was, okay? Uh, but So we were running code-required exhaust ventilation 
the indoor concentration of PM 2.5 from outdoors was about half of what it was outdoors. Okay, so, so even not, that not very tight shell, running it at maybe point, it was about 0.25 to 0.3 ACH operational, right? Mm-hmm. And we were seeing, again, indoor-outdoor was about 50% in that situation. And then if you filter, obviously, you drive it down. But it gives you some idea of the range uh, and, if, and if it's a tighter home, it's going to be lower. So maybe if it's a if it's a one ACH or two ACH fifty home, maybe you drive that down to thirty percent or forty percent or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then if it's that tight, then you have the other source of pollutants, which is then us the and stuff our inserts, activity. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So before we leave the particles, so particles and gases. You know, you typically hear that the two types of indoor indoor pollutants are particles particle. particle phase materials and gases. Um, is that the way you think of it as, a, as an IQ scientist, that there's particles and gases? And could you talk about, I guess what I'm getting at is um, aerosols and um, gases turning into particles, that kind of nebulous area between the uh, we, Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's, it's certainly one uh, framework to think about. Uh, I think more in terms of chemicals and chemical pollutants and biological pollutants. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, and uh, what's happening, uh, the, so let me go stay with the chemicals for a minute, because when we talk about particles and gases, you're in that chemical realm, mm-hmm. right? And particles are physical things, right? So there's, there's a certain physical, it, it, we, first of all, when we talk about the harmfulness of PM2.5, um, we're, there have been a lot, a lot of studies that try to figure out, okay, what exactly, because mm-hmm. the reason, the way that we know that PM 2.5 is harmful, the main way, the real, like, strong evidence is that we see outdoors when PM 2.5 levels go up, more people go to the hospital, more people die, more people have, you know, various health ailments, okay? So so we have these, we call it epidemio- epidemiological evidence. Right. So there's a tremendous amount of epidemiological evidence, and many researchers have done really good work showing particles go up outdoors, we have health effects. There's some amount of direct human exposure studies, but many, many fewer, and then there's some occupational studies, things like that. But there's a lot of researchers are trying to say, okay, well, can we find specific elements that are going that are when the, when the, those elements are, or or con- contributors or p- basically parts of the PM two point five so specific chemicals or specific physical things so right. met- metals or uh, organic carbon or carbon uh, we call it black carbon or elemental carbon so the more carbonaceous stuff that would come out of diesel trucks right so when we see some element of that go up do we see more health effects? And the results broadly from those studies are inco- they're inconclusive. Hmm. So there are some studies showing that, oh, it's the, you know, when organic carbon goes up, we see more health effects, or when the black carbon fraction goes up, we see more health effects, or when the metals go up. So, so every el- almost, almost acids, right, the organic acids, almost every yeah. element, there's been some evidence and some reason to believe that that element maybe is particularly has a particular uh, biological effect uh, that could account for some or, you know, a lot of the effect of the particulate matter. Mostly those studies have been inconclusive. So basically, you say, look, without knowing exactly what's harmful, we're just 
saying broadly, it's good to reduce your exposure to these fine particles. These are, again, mm-hmm. these are materials that your body is, uh, doesn't need, right? We don't need to have those coming right. into our lungs. So we try to keep concentrations kind of as low as possible. We don't need to have, we don't need to live in clean rooms, mm-hmm. right? So if you're staying within the federal or California state regulations, so there are federal regulations for what is acceptable levels of particulate matter. I think if you're staying within those, those levels, you're probably in pretty good shape. And so, yeah, I was talking about particles and gases, and you said, no, you like to think of it actually as chemicals and biological components. So what's the difference there? Why um, do you make that distinction? Well, so there's this different sources and different, and, and, and there's overlap there, too. Uh, let me say one more yeah, word. Yeah, so it's not easy for an it's outsider not, to get a sense it's of not it. Easy. It's not easy. It's very complicated. and, and, and uh, Let's try and, to make it easy. Let's try to make it easy. So, <laughs> so I think uh, this is something you spoke about at the conference. This is a, a paradigm that Bill Nazaroff, as a profess, long-time professor. That's where I got the five principles, yeah. At, yes, at UC Berkeley. And, and, it was, uh, and one you of worked my, with him. Or he, he was one of my advisors as yeah. a graduate student, so <laughs> I've known Bill for... 25 years. That's awesome. Um, and he's, I and I've credited him, by the way. Yeah, the no, for principles. sure. And he's, he's, I consider him a good friend and, and, uh, and really a luminary in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and he, he boils it down and he says, start with a good enclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, second thing is to limit what you're putting in, Try you know, basically not dump a lot of poisons into your environment, so what you release into the environment. So right. good enclosure, limit emissions, uh, keep it dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, ventilate mm-hmm. and 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 do air cleaning as appropriate. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and and it's roughly in in that order. Um, the thing he doesn't uh, that you might miss in that is when he says a good enclosure. There's, there's quite a few things that are oh, yeah, implied in that good enclosure, and we were just talking earlier, right? That number one thing by far is keeping your enclosure dry. Right, so when he says keep it dry is number three, what he means is the air keep inside the, air the space dry, mm-hmm. uh, but the clo- keeping the enclosure dry is is at least to me by far the number one because that's what's going to make your house fall down. Number one, mm-hmm. okay? and these biologics. And number emissions. two, if you start growing stuff inside your enclosure, it's going to get inside your house. Okay, mm-hmm. so keeping it dry is really important. I'm sorry, keep the the good enclosure. So it's it's watertight and airtight. Mm-hmm. And, and and making sure there's no condensation inside the enclosure, yeah. right? Those three things. So you have to think a little bit about how air is moving, how temp, you know, where where is your yeah, your yeah. cold surface, how much moisture is coming into contact with your cold surface, etc. And then potentially drying potential, right? So mm-hmm. if if we can design it as uh, great as as perfectly as we want, but moisture may still get in. And if moisture gets in, it needs a way to get out. Right. So robustness comes into it, right? The good enclosure is one that is also robust, which also has some drying potential. Okay. That's number one. And then, and then the emissions, we could talk a lot about that. Yeah, um, you don't need to go through the five no. principles. They'll, they'll be woven yeah. in. But I want to take you back to the, so the gas-based pollutants, you know, the poster child are the VOCs, SVOCs, carbon monoxides, carbon dioxides. Um, tell me about that. Are okay, they, are those so, particles so this is or one of the reasons why I say about the particles and gases because there's a lot of interaction, right? So right, exactly. There are there are chemicals that come into your house on as as part of the particulate matter, and then they get okay, heated up. That they don't even have to get heated up, heated up is because there is a dynamic equilibrium hmm. of the chemicals between being condensed 
Uh, okay, in a liquid form, basically, or sometimes even a solid form, and then what's in the air, and then in, in gaseous form. So then you bring that particle inside where there's a different mixture of gases, mm-hmm. and, 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 the, and the, surface the post, chemistry. The poster child for this is a chemical called ammonium nitrate, where it will outside be in uh, equilibrium with ammonium nitrate nitrate in the, in the air mm-hmm. and then um, and then you bring it and I have to actually I may have to follow it up because I have to check to see I think it's it's nit- I remember with nitric acid I think it's nitric acid but in um, any case it's in a dynamic equilibrium outside you bring it in the gases actually get removed onto surfaces and then the compound that's in the particle form will then evaporate basically right or partition into the gas form because there's not as much gas of those gases right, that, that are it. in that dynamic equilibrium um, organic carbon so uh, there's lots of chemicals these semi-volatile organic compounds um, that will that, that may come into your house as part of the particulate matter and then inside your house go back into the gas phase or actually a lot of times it happens the other way around you have more organics in your house more of these semi-volatile organics in the air in your house because you have sources inside and, and you then don't just mean phthalates plasticizers all those things that's, that's included mm-hmm. okay so so actually one of the mechanisms for those things to leave your house is actually via these fine particles so fine particles which are coming through your house, coming from outdoors, or maybe generated inside your house, while they're in your house, will pick up organics. Right. Okay? And, and very small amounts, okay? Mm-hmm. Because, but it'll pick up small amounts of these things and then carry them out of your house when the particles leave your house with ventilation. And, and that's why... Or they get stuck in the filter, Okay. Perhaps. And the reason why uh, they're being carried out on the particles is because these things really don't like to be in the gas phase. Some of these chemicals, mm-hmm. right? They really want to be condensed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, molecules that uh, make it out into the airspace of your house, okay, are going to look for another surface to condense onto, okay? Mm-hmm. And that could be a surface of your house. Is that absorb onto? Is it? It's, you can think of it as absorption. Sor- it's absorption. You can think of it as absorption process because it's a reversible, uh-huh. right? But we call it condensation too, or is it accurate to say? That's that? a good question. I have to because we call them condensates, but technically, you know, condensation could occur on that glass over there. And I, I would condensation say is basically whenever you have. You, we typically think of condensation when you see like a, a droplet of water, the the actual ca- chemical itself. Right? right, and what we're looking at here is more that there's, um, it's it's the reason called surface because it's going to be a, it's not going to be a droplet of that chemical. It's going to be a particle or a droplet that it has uh, other organics in it. So this organic chemical will um, will be uh, have a lower energy state essentially to be at part of that droplet. Else, right, yeah. exactly adhered yeah. to that droplet. So, uh, because it's it's, it's, it's chemistry, it's it's, at this, yeah. it's it's happening kind of at the single molecule level yeah. rather than at the bulk cluster of molecule, yeah, yeah. R- at the bulk material level. Yeah. So that's why we typically would call it more sorption. Yeah, good, okay, okay, but good. it's but it's a, but it's basically it's the important part is that it's it's not there's not a lot of it in the gas phase. So when when one of these chemicals gets out into the gas phase, it's gonna it's gonna mostly look to another surface, and that could be just going right back onto the carpet where it came from, 
or the wall. Right. Or but meanwhile, if a, that, if a particle's mm-hmm. in this in the vicinity, it might stick to that particle and instead. Then become, yeah. And then once it's on that particle, it's going to stick around there. Mm-hmm. And then that, and then as that particle moves to your house and moves out, it's going to go out with it. Right. Okay. So okay, good. so that's why the the when I say the chemicals and 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 gases. Yes, there are some things that are entirely in the gas phase, and there are some things that are entirely in the particle phase, and there's a bunch of stuff in between that's going between gas and particle phase. There you go. Um, and I think that's that last part that I wanted yeah. to talk about. It's, we, and it's not just that, but and I don't, I don't want to stay on this too more. We need to get through it. But the the idea being that if you're wearing like some cologne and someone's cooking, now you have interactions between those two, and you could have formaldehyde from cabinets or something. So you get all these chemical interactions in the home, right? Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up though, because it's it points to one of the great successes that we've had. So we've had a lot of successes for improving indoor quality. I, I've been giving a talks. Yeah, no, go should, Lawrence Berkeley. No, it's not Lawrence Berkeley. It's it's a whole community of people. We we've we contribute to that. Uh, the talk I gave this summer summer camp, mm-hmm. uh, I really uh, struggled with what to say to people, right? Because there's a lot of uh, people in in the crowd who are building homes, who are uh, manufacturing equipments, going into these homes, and mm-hmm. and and you know most of these uh, there's a full gamut, right? From just for a quick second, summer camp is the Westford Symposium on Building Science every August. Huh? Thank you very much. Right. Uh, okay, run by Building Science Corporation, they do a great job. They've done, you know, they've contributed a lot too over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Done, so. Um, love those guys and, and women. You're wondering what to say to that audience. So I was wondering what to say to this audience, and the, the show really was, okay, there's a lot more attention about indoor air quality now than there used to be, so there, there's a there's a tendency to think that things are worse now that we're kind of more aware of them, mm-hmm. but actually things are so much better than they used to be. Oh, that's fascinating. Right? And, and, I, and I brought up a couple of things. Uh, I grew up in a house where my dad smoked all the time in the yeah, house. Me too. And, and in my, in, in, in the social group we were in, it was rude to ask somebody not to smoke in your house. Yeah. Okay. And now think it, in most places, even in places where people do smoke inside, I think it's pretty common that somebody would at least ask if it's okay or they wouldn't, they wouldn't light up a cigarette in someone else's house unless they knew that was okay with the person. Oh, absolutely. And That's I put a up point. a slide today showing that even homes of smokers, right? You know, more than half of the homes of smokers have smoking bans inside the home because smokers have realized that they're willing to take chances with their own health, but they're not willing to risk their family's health, mm-hmm. right? So they have, maybe they're hooked, maybe they can't quit, maybe they just enjoy it, yeah. and they're willing to, you know, have the, the all the negative consequences that go along with it. Or That's maybe, a really good perspective. Okay, but, 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 but they're like, okay, I could, this is me, but I don't want my kids or my wife or my mother-in-law to have to deal with this, right? So I'm going to do it outside. So, so smoking, smoking is much better. Uh, volatile organic compounds, right? Everybody, it's everyone thinks, oh, volatile. So formaldehyde, right? Formaldehyde used to be a big problem. We used to have really high and formaldehyde levels, mm-hmm. and that's one of the VOCs. And we realized the sources from the uh, insulation and other sources, and we uh, manufactured wood products. And through a whole series of things, we've driven down formaldehyde levels. We just did a study in California and found that if you are using the materials, the manufactured wood materials that are compliant with the California Resources Board regulations, which we assume all of them were because they were homes built after those regulations were in place. And these homes had code-compliant ventilation, uh, which was operating when we made our measurements. 
which is, again, required in California code, um, the formaldehyde levels were way lower than what we've seen in new homes in any prior study, okay? Now, there's still some question yeah, about cool. whether they're low enough, mm-hmm. okay? But it's really a big advance. Tremendous reductions in outdoor pollution in most places. There are, there are a few places that are worse than they used to be, but most places are way better than they used to be. So that's a big advantage. It's a big uh, uh, improvement over indoor air quality because so much of our pollutants indoors come from outdoors. Right. Uh, volatile organic compounds. Actually, we've reduced VOCs in a lot of consumer products, uh, including some specific ones. Benzene is a carcinogen. We used to actually have benzene in consumer products. We don't anymore because they realize that it's harmful, so they took it out. Uh, we took we greatly reduced benzene and gasoline. Um, other VOCs that were in consumer products that were harmful, we've taken out. So there's been a lot of uh, advances to reduce our exposure to pollutants. And the, the bottom line, long-winded lead-up, is that most of us are living in homes where the indoor air quality is actually pretty good. Hmm. Okay, so, so we're but very... could be better? We're concerned. Uh, yeah, it probably could be better, um, but but I think that most of us are, are living in homes that I would consider to be basically okay, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, that we're not... It, 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 you can always measure chemicals. You can always find things that could be reduced. Mm-hmm. But the That's question is, are we living in environments which are substantially risky to our health? Right. Okay. And I think for most of us, we're not. Now, there's lots of exceptions to that. There's at-risk so, populations. And- at-risk populations. And, 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 and I'd say, uh, you know, the biggest exceptions are... Um, Houses with sort of active dampness and mold problems. Yep. Okay. So those things are, I think, broadly risky to the population, right? So uh, your sensitivity to uh, dampness and mold related health effects is not, it doesn't align with some of the other things. So you, you, know, you, you don't need to be an asthmatic or a COPD patient to, to, to be sensitive to dampness and mold. Lots of healthy people uh, living in homes with a dampness or mold problem actually develop. Uh, 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 respiratory issues, respiratory issues, etc. Right. So there's there's a mm-hmm. it, it induces it basically induces uh, 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 conditions. And there okay. are certain molds that can produce mycotoxins that can be neurologically. Toxic. Yeah, and, and even there, we're still trying to figure out like exactly what it is, right? So what 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 species is essentially within uh, these homes are are dangerous to us, and we still don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. We, we even don't even have great metrics for figuring out when a home is risky. I say that because almost every home, well, every, every home has mold in it, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. It's all around us. It's outside. It's, it, you know, mold, it, you know, the, the term mold, right? So these species that we consider to be, to be mold. Fungal species. Fungal species are all around, right? So it's not that fungal species, but, but, but we know from experience that if you can see or smell Mold mm-hmm. in a in a home and mildew is mold and mildew is mold. So if you can see or smell it, right? If it's if it smells musty, yeah, okay, that's mold. And, and if you see it or smell it, there's a greater chance that somebody in the house is experiencing symptoms. Mm, yeah, now, that doesn't mean that the house that everybody who enters that house or spends time in that house is going to have negative health effects. It right. just means there's a greater chance of it, right? So, uh, and then uh, the, the, uh, uh, there's another measure, uh, a culturable species that you can you can take a sample and culture it, and, and, and there's some associations there. But these are associations, so they're highly imperfect. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, precautionary principle, it's kind of like the particles, right? So association so, is worse than a correlation? Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, so an association means that we, we look at 
a group of people, or, or often two groups of people, we say, okay, across, uh-huh. a, across big groups of people, when we see more of this thing, do we see more health effects? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Right? That's an association. Um, so it's similar to a correlation. Yeah. Okay. And, and, a, and a correlation is there's a dose response. So yes. you're saying, okay, mm-hmm. uh, okay as, association is the two things go together. Okay. Uh, and, and an association and a correlation actually can be the same thing if, mm-hmm. it, if there's a dose response, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the bigger issue is whether it's causative, right? So have we ruled out other things? Because two things might go together. But the thing, there might be a third thing that's that's causing both of those things. Right. Okay. So uh, when we get to when we get to causative, we we usually have two other elements of it, which is we rule out other stuff and we have a mechanism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with particulate matter, actually, the the health scientists have done great job of figuring out exactly how do particles interact with our bodies to cause the effects that we see from these epidemiological studies. So it's, so it's rock solid because we say, okay, people get sick and we have the, the physical biological right. mechanisms whereby the particles in our bodies are causing our bodies to respond in a certain way that lead to the symptoms or the effects right. that we see. Right, right, right. Okay. okay, so I'll just make this clear and then we'll, we'll get into the next topic. But the reason we, are, we started talking about all the pollutants is because the pollutant concentrations in the environment, they don't cause health effects. But they lead to the exposure, and they lead to the uptake, and that leads to the dose, which can lead to the response. And we can't really control any of that except for the first part of the chain. Do you, do you agree or disagree? Like the, the oh, I'm sorry. I disagree. Am okay, I tell to disagree? me. You're allowed to disagree. Your podcast. So you can't control the... I was thinking you control, you control the population. We control every part of that. You can't control my physiological response to a... No, that's... A, well, uh, yes, we can. Okay, control my uh, response. <laughs> yes, to, we can. Uh, uh, I think. Now, again, it's not my area of expertise. But uh, if you, in fact, so last week we had the wild, uh, a couple weeks ago with we this wild, big wildfire smoke. So we, LBL. Oh, you're going to call my behavior. LBL put together, no, no. LBL put together some 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 recommendations. And, and there are others that have put together recommendations for what you can do. And one of our, one element of our recommendation was attend to general wellness principles. Get, on, get enough sleep, okay, mm-hmm. eat well. And uh, hydrate. Those so three reduce things. your total load. Okay. No, to keep your general health as high as possible. Mm-hmm. So your tolerance. We talked earlier, and I don't know if this will make the podcast, but we talked earlier about how your body has some ability. Your body has defenses, right? So we're constantly exposed to pathogens that our body is protect is, is dealing with, right? So when you get sick. It's, it's not always that you've been exposed. Sometimes you're exposed to something your body hasn't seen before. That's definitely like one way to get sick, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of times, a lot of times we get sick. It's stuff that we're exposed to all the time, but we're, our, our defenses are not... Basically, again, this is not my area of expertise, so I just, this is what I understand from, mm-hmm. from the physicians, mm-hmm. that uh, your body gets run down and then your defenses aren't as strong. So stuff that would, on a different day, not make you ill, mm-hmm. makes you ill, mm-hmm. right? So... When we talk, so that's the general advice is, look, your body is breathing in all these particles and having to fight off all these things. It's spending a lot of energy fighting off that, and it's going to make you more vulnerable to everything else. Right. Okay? So if you get enough sleep and you hydrate well and, you know, don't stress your body out, then you'll be better able to deal with that external threat of the, mm-hmm. of the particles. So, so yes, even your, 
even your personal susceptibility is something you have some control over. That's true. Uh, and then, and then you you mentioned so yes, there's the sources, but we have a lot of control. I was actually saying pollutant concentration is what we try to control. We try to control pollutant concentration. Yeah, sure. With exhaust and sources. Sure. So yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and I mean it partly from the perspective of you know my role as a mechanical designer, and I can do some enclosure consulting as well. But as a mechanical designer. Keep it dry, ventilate, and filter. The last three of you know Bill Nazaroff's five, those are things that are on my plate, and I can yep. work with that. The reason I'm sitting across the table from you, Brett, is because one of the things I can design are kitchen range hood systems, um, and. I actually can design them, but I'm really constrained by the architecture. The architect has said, perhaps, it's on an island and it's a downdraft. Please pick the CFM, right? And, you know, I put my hand, my heel in my hand on my forehead like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can, you know, can I, can I make the hot gas go up and catch it there? And so what I want to do is talk to you about kitchen rains hoods. And just very briefly, um, cooking is chemistry. So cooking produces things that we want to capture, probably things that you've already mentioned. Could you just kind of synopsize what, what comes off of cooking generally? Is that possible? Is the, sure. It's a big topic. Uh, so so the, the first big uh, dichotomy is between gas and electric. So if you, if you have uh, gas, whether it's propane or natural gas, it's combustion. Um, all the other combustion appliances that we put in our houses were careful, very, very careful <laughs> for the to vent, to, right, to vent the combustion products. Now, gas is significantly cleaner than a wood stove or a pellet stove, right? So it's maybe not as bad, but still, uh, our gas uh, furnace, our gas water heater, we make sure we vent those. Now, we're also producing a lot more uh, combustion products from those from those other uh, appliances, and they're happening. It's happening when we're not paying attention. So it is more important to vent to your yeah. adequate to correctly <laughs> vent your furnace or your water heater. So I'm not saying it's not a good idea. Definitely, you want to vent those. But but uh, with our our cooking burners, we don't directly vent those. We have some kind of exhaustive. Hopefully, have an exhaust device in our kitchen. Unfortunately, we're still building a lot of houses. Let's stop right here. We're still building houses in this country, lots and lots and lots of houses, without any exhaust ventilation in the kitchen, whether it's downdraft or on the ceiling or a range hood or a microwave or anything. Okay? Wow. So that's bad. That's, that's dumb. Please, if you're, if you're in any way involved in doing that, stop, please, because it's a bad <laughs> idea. Okay? There are a lot of decision makers on There's this. A, hopefully. List. Hopefully, if you're listening to this and if, you, if you're wondering why... Send me an email. I'll send you materials. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so, so the so the gas. And by the way, this idea of venting is for for any, whether you have gas or electric. Okay, which we'll get to. So the gas produces combustion products. Um, and that's the, the electric carbon coils. Monoxide, carbon dioxide. So dioxide, right, carbon monoxide, uh, not as much. I don't want to take you too deep. Yeah, into no, no, this. but but the combustion products include uh, the biggest one probably is nitrogen dioxide because because even if it's burning pretty cleanly, you're producing nitrogen oxides. You produce more nitric oxide to nitrogen dioxide. Nitrogen dioxide is a regulated outdoor air pollutant. It's a respiratory irritant. Um, we've done work to show that in uh, you know hmm. cooking a meal, cooking dinner in a moderately sized home, uh, you can get nitrogen dioxide levels in your home with gas. Nitrogen dioxide levels in your home that exceed 
the levels that EPA sets for outdoor standards. Wow. Okay, so, so it, we know that the quantities you produce from uh, a, a moderate to substantial amount of cooking are enough to pollute the air inside your home just from the gas part of it. Now, electric coils obviously don't have that, um, but they will produce what we call ultrafine particles. The gas also produces ultrafine particles, but the electric coils will produce ultrafine particles. Wow. Um, and then, uh, but, but it doesn't produce the nitrogen dioxide or the carbon dioxide or anything, uh, or the water vapor. Gas mm-hmm. also produces a lot of water vapor. Mm-hmm. And then there's the cooking. Uh, and, and basically, the, the type of cooking really matters. So you can produce these fine particles when you're co- cooking. You can uh, release a lot of uh, other volatile organic compounds, including a chemical called acrolein, mm-hmm. which uh, comes uh, from heating oils, uh, a lot of vegetable oils. Uh, so, and you can get to acrolein levels that are uh, potentially irritable to, your, to, you know, to some or a lot of people. Uh, and, and, and other stuff, uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, other chemicals. So you produce this basically chemical soup. Uh, there was recently this great thing called Home Chem where they right. brought really, really fancy analytical instrumentation. They measured all the different chemicals that you produce when you're cooking. It's really quite astounding. Uh, so, so cooking produces this chemical mixture, including things that we kind of know can be harmful if, ingest, if, if taken into your body in substantial quantities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, I always caution, I'm not telling you not to cook. Please, like cooking is a wonderful thing. <laughs> Please eat. We, we cook in my house with a gas, an old gas stove almost every day. We love to eat home-cooked food. I hope you can enjoy it too. So definitely cook. Go ahead and cook with gas if that's your preference. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about We're going to talk about ranges. We can talk about decarbonization too if you want. Okay, so if you're worried about climate change, there are you know Please. maybe some better options than cooking with gas. But in terms of your health, the key thing really is the venting. So you want to basically remove all of those chemical pollutants at the source and take them out of your house before they mix around your home. Right. And, and it has the, the added there. benefit is it takes the odors out too. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes the, you like the odors, right. right? You like that, you know, smell of home-cooked food. But, but usually... You, There's enough it's, coming it's, in. It's right? enough coming out. It's, you know, the, the arrangement doesn't have to be perfect. But, but having a range... It's not perfect. Right. Having a range... So because of all those chemicals, this, the, the precautionary thing to do without worrying about exactly which chemicals you're producing at exactly which level and exactly when it's going to get to a harmful level in your house is just vented and you don't have to worry about that. You can yeah. just focus on picking good recipes and enjoying the food. So tell me characteristics of a good vent, right? So... Um Height above the cooktop? Do you have a recommendation? Uh, height above the cooktop is is a is a factor, but it's maybe not the most important factor. Uh, actually, your Doesn't geometry geometry out? and intuition work pretty well here. Okay, and 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 your own senses work pretty well, right? So, if uh, if you're capturing most of the pollutants, you can tell because. The odors won't be as strong, for example, okay? Sometimes you can see the smoke. Basically, though, the, bet, you, you see what, what are the characteristics of a good range hood? Uh, we call it a sump. Basically, it's actually the, some kind of a hood. So you start with physical. Some kind of a bucket. Kind of some kind like of a, a bucket, pan or a pan, right? There's something where the, the, the plume, the plume yeah, yeah. comes up from the stove and is temporarily captured into something, mm-hmm. and then from the top of that thing, that, that into that hood. There's a funnel, actually. That hood, right? So the oldest range hoods were actually hoods, 
<laughs> you look back at these old Venta hoods and they were these giant hoods where you go to a commercial kitchen, they have these big hoods. So you physically capture and then you suck out of that volume. Okay. And that's a very effective system. And then what you want is you want to make sure that that hood is big enough and covers your cooking. So one of the things we've done in our research is we, we've, we, it, this is pretty obvious, but we quantified and documented it, <coughs> that if you cook on the back burner, there's lots of range hoods that don't cover both burners. By cooking on the back Which burner, crazy. you get much better removal because it's underneath the hood. And if you cook on the front burner, which is only half underneath the hood, you get much less. Yeah. Can you put numbers to that? Well, it's impossible to say. I can put numbers. Actually, I can. We have numbers. So there's lots of range hoods where if you're operating them at, let's say, 200 CFM, 200 cubic feet per minute, and you're cooking on the back burner. Which by mid-speed. Okay, which, uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of the, if you buy, uh, let's say you spend two to three hundred dollars, two to two fifty, three hundred dollars on a range hood, um, you're going to have probably three speeds. Uh, the low speed might be 100 or 125 CFM. Uh, maybe a little less than that installed because a lot of times the installed. If, yeah, if, yeah. So pressure if, drop. Let's say it. you have a good low pressure drop, straight, path out smooth of the duct, right? And okay. that's another thing. The path out of the building. Path out of the building makes, makes a lot of makes a lot of difference. But let's say you're you know, low speed might be anywhere from seventy five to one hundred fifty cfm. A medium speed might be anywhere from one hundred twenty five to two hundred cfm, and a high speed is something more than you know two fifty. Okay, ideally. Uh, and that's and and, they, and those go up as you as you buy more power you know more expensive models with more powerful mm, fans. That's on my list here. But okay, so so but if you're at two hundred cfm, which you can get with a lot of range, so, so sometimes that might be a high setting or a medium setting, depending on all the things we talked about. Um, two hundred cfm, your cookie on the back burners. Most range hoods will have will be in the eighty percent or more effective. So eighty percent of what you produce down at the cooktop is going to get removed, okay? A good range should be close to 100%, okay? At, even at 200 CFM, with it, if you have that big bucket, right? Right. You'll get 95 plus percent. Okay? Fantastic. Now you front go burner. to the front burner, mm-hmm. and there's a really big range. So at 200 CFM, when you ha- have that big bucket, that hood that covers your front burner, you're still getting more than 80% effective, okay? Maybe even 90% effective because... Your the geometry is the still, still goes it still up goes up and cap caption yeah. is pulled out. But if you have kind of a more standard model that's only covering part of the front burner, okay, you may only be getting fifty. Even at two hundred cfm, you might be getting fifty percent effective. And then if you have a microwave, right, you might be down to forty percent or thirty percent effective. Wow. And then if you go to a low speed, Which all those common. numbers come way down. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're cooking on the front burner with a standard range, it's only covering half the front burner, and you're running it on low speed, you're doing something. Mm-hmm. But you may off. be only removing <laughs> twenty or thirty percent yeah. uh, on that first pass, and then after that, you're just it's just ventilation, right? It, it gets it goes mixes around the kitchen, mixes most homes now open floor plan, so it's mixing all around the house. And then you're trying to, you know, ventilate your house to clean your air as opposed to removing the source. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you were you were elusive on the height above the range, but like if your architects might want to know or homeowners, 
you know, we typically say 24 to 36 inches above the range is a good number. Sure. You say you can go higher. Uh, if you go it higher, it should be wider. Right? Higher should be wider, right? So, you mm. know, you mentioned an island. Right. Uh, it depends on how much money you have, right? So if you've got an island cooktop and you can afford to spend the two grand for those really big, beautiful hoods, which are architectural features, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they work really well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, you know, you run a few hundred CFM out of those things. And because there's a big physical capture volume, right, that, that, that's over your hood, that the plume goes up, gets caught in there, and you don't need a tremendous amount of flow because once it's in there, you're just sucking out of this yep. basically yeah. enclosed it's volume. It's a buffer. It's a buffer. And right? side panels could help, or, or if it's on an outside wall. Yeah, sure, side panels low. can help. With, you but know, not really? A, a, a good, good friend and colleague, Tom Phillips, he loves the side panels. Um, and yeah, they can help. Or even just cabinets on the so, side. So the cabinets, the cabinets on the side, you know, let's say more production homes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cabinets on the side do help, yeah. right? Because it helps keep it enclosed. It, it helps direct the plume, especially if you're cooking in the back burner, right? Because those side right. cabinets, they're not coming out all the way to where the front burners are. Right. They're only coming out to where the back burners are. So if you cook on the back burner, and, and so you mentioned the, the height, right? So, yeah, having it a little lower is generally better, okay? But if it's a little lower, then it might be a little less convenient to cook on the back burners, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's a trade-off there. Uh, there's, a, there's kind of a standard height, right? So if, if it's a production home and they're putting the cabinets in and it's yeah. a, on the wall... Uh, they're, they're kind of made there's a, there's a height and, and a lot yeah, of it's like a 12 inch cabinet with it's, a range and then eight, it's yeah so it's design. designed to be something like uh, you know 30 inches or something above the cooktop I mm-hmm. think is a, is a, f- a fairly common number yeah. so your uh, your, your microwave is going to come down I, I think there may be uh, 12 to 18 inches or something depending on yeah. the size of the microwave there's some different sizes there right yeah. so so that's going to come down and that might you know microwave may only be 18 inches above the cooktop uh, because you need to reach it right you need to be able to get in there and and, and you, you can't rely on being seven feet tall right so for people of common height to reach up and get into that microwave, it has to be lowered down. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that, again, that's fine if you cook on the back burners, right? Because the microwave's over right. the back burners. It doesn't work so well if you cook on the front burner. So mm-hmm. if you really want that microwave above the range, fine. Go ahead. Just get that. Back burners. <laughs> Hopefully those microwave manufacturers will make there, – there are, there are exhaust units that move enough air. That's okay. the, and the sound from microwaves. But, but a lot of them are louder because you're, it's a more circuitous route. Okay? Yeah. But from an air quality perspective, it works fine yeah. uh, if they're operated. And you probably need to operate those on a medium or high setting because in the low setting, they just don't move, in, mm-hmm. they don't move enough air to really be effective. So cook in the back burner, turn it on to medium to high, uh, and you on their microwave, and you should be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the range should, if you want to... You, you talk about the height. So if you're if you're if you're getting to pick the height, then you're probably living. You're probably talking about a home that's, that's a custom home rather than a production home. Yes. Right. And then you have a little more flexibility. Those you, you probably have a, a little more ability to pay for a, a more expensive product. So you can because these the the the, the 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 products with the big hoods are more expensive. Mm-hmm. Right. So I want to be sensitive for the production homes. Uh, you don't need to spend four or five hundred dollars to get a good range. You could spend two hundred dollars and get one that you know has a pretty quiet, 
has a very quiet low speed setting, has a reasonably, you know, has a good tolerable medium speed setting. And, and then having that high speed setting, even if it's noisy, is really helpful mm-hmm. just in case you burn something or you're cooking a lot, more, you're Absolutely. using all four burners or something. You want to have you want to have a setting where you can move 300 CFM because for those few times that you need it, right? Wait, wait. So we got to go here then. So you said 300 CFM as though it's crazy high, right? We get clients with 1500 CFM range hoods, right? So it's as though the food will taste three times as good if the vent hood goes three times as high or something. No, like. it just looks better, man. Yeah, I guess so. Well, why don't they make ones that look like that that move 400 CFM? Or- well, I, I think those because they're very often, uh, look, if you're going into a, a, a high end kitchen, right, then you're, you're Probably having a range thirty six inch Viking. Like, well, it could be a th- even if it's a, even if it's a thirty inch. Okay, if it's a high power burner, then you're actually producing more pollutants both from the burner and 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 potentially from the cooking because you're doing higher heat cooking. Mm, that's another right? good thing about it. you can control emissions with a heat. Okay, so heat, higher heat, lower heat, heat cooking, cooking is better, right? Yeah. You know, might give you more and, and, and you can control with lids actually. Excuse me for interrupting. Sure, <laughs> just put a lid on your frying pan. Sure, but you know, I, I I'm not look I'm. I'm an air quality guy. Like I'm not a I'm not a cooking. Be the expert. cooking police, Brett. Please. I don't. I'm the no, cooking no. police. I do not want to be the cooking. I want you to cook. I want you to cook however you want to cook. Uh-huh. I just want you to have a piece of equipment in your house that can allow you to cook however you want to cook, without polluting your air. Well right? said. So, uh, and I know that sometimes to do some of those stir fries and stuff, it's less convenient to do in the back, right? There's a reason people use the front burners because it's more convenient. So if you're going to be doing a lot of like. Front burner, high heat cooking. Maybe you're doing again a lot of Asian cooking, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just Asians who do Asian cooking, right? So it's you know I live in Berkeley. Everybody's doing stir fries, stir yeah. fries and walks, um, and and that's a, a higher heat and it's going to produce more pollutants. It's going to all come in a big slog. The plumes are going to be moving faster, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So you have like less time to capture them. It's yeah. harder to direct them. So in those situations, yeah, hotter plumes move really, faster. Yeah, really, right. So you that. really, you really need to have coverage, mm-hmm. right? But again, whenever possible, like try to get in the habit of turn the range on before you start. Set the, the setting as appropriate to the cooking you're doing. Cook on the back burner whenever you can. And if, and if you're really committed to cooking on the front burner, then you really need to commit yourself also to having a range that covers that front burner. Um, so Does it need to be wider than it? Like if you have a 30-inch range, would you recommend a 42-inch hood? I mean, that's hard to ask for, but... Sure, it's better. But, yeah. It's better. It's better but yeah. Okay, so you're building your custom kitchen. Maybe yeah. you do that, uh-huh. but I don't think it's necessary. Okay, good. Um, yeah. One more topic on range hoods. And by the way, I don't think the 1500 CFM is ever necessary, right? So I mentioned the, the yeah, bigger okay. burners. You need you need more. Okay, but let's say you have a, a, a six burner wolf stove with you know the twenty plus thousand BTU per hour burners. And you're going to be cooking two or three things at a time, right? Usually, people are not cooking more than two or three things at a time because how many hands do you Unless have? Must right? the team of cooks. Exactly right. <laughs> okay, so so in that situation, you're going to want to have a bigger hood. You want to have a higher airflow. Okay, but still, uh, probably you know 400. I I don't think you. I think you really need to go beyond that. If you have a good hood, good geometry, yeah. good geometry, you really need to go to the really high flows. I agree. And the higher the flows you go to, the more your systems it. get really expensive, right? So I, one of my favorite calls I, I, I ever got was a guy, 
uh, I think it was North Carolina. Maybe he's listening to this podcast, and, and he uh, and he said, "I have a I have an ethical dilemma." So um, I'm 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 doing this this work for this family, you know, putting in their kitchen, and they got the really nice wolf stove, and then of course they need the big range hood, so I got the big range hood, um, and then of, of course that means now I need to put a makeup air system in, and this is getting really expensive now, right? Yeah. I mean, they already laid out the money for the stove, and now they out the thousands thousands of dollars for their fancy range hood, and now I'm telling them it's going to be another you know, whatever the amount was yeah. for the for the makeup air system, right? That's expensive. And, uh, and, my, and my ethical dilemma is this, is I, I don't think they're ever going to use it. I think it's just, you know, all their neighbors and friends have these really fancy systems. And I, don't, I don't think they're going to cook more than a few times a year. So do I really need to put the makeup air system in? And I was like, yes, you do. I, I, you tell them the indoor air quality guy from Berkeley said you do because, <laughs> because maybe they're not cooking but you're building a, you know, rebuilding a house in this case. I think it was rebuilding. Uh, that the next person in may cook a lot. Yeah. Right. So they need to have if you, the system that you're. It yeah, is a system. The house is a system. You're creating something where if you're putting yeah. in a piece of equipment that's going to move 600 cfm, you need to actually have a makeup air system to because it was a fairly tight house. You know, it's a yeah. good house, but. Uh, it's fascinating. We think of ourselves as rational. I love this comment you just made about the, the neighbors, where the neighbors going. But we're really very relational, right? So if your neighbors all have, you know, high power range hoods, you're gonna want one. Yeah. Even though it might not be needed. Range hoods are cool. All the cool people have them. <laughs> you know that. Right Did here. you hear that? If you if you if you wanna own a Tesla, it starts by getting a range hood. That's right. That's right. I don't even know if they let you Drop the down payment uh, for the Tesla without, you have without knowing you have a range hood. I just okay. made that up. It's not a real thing. So uh, speaking of down, um, downdraft range hoods. Oh, downdraft, yeah. So what, any comments on that? His facial expression good. is a comment. I wish They're not as good. They're not as good. Uh, again, geometry, it works out the geometry. Are they at all good? Sure. I guess they're better than nothing. Uh, so if you have gas... Uh, then I don't the, want to be a leading question asker, actually. So, what do you think of downdraft? Lead, I'm not. I'm, I'm able to deal with your. You won't, you won't push me around. Don't worry. Uh, so, so we did. We we we've done limited amount of work with them. So I I can some of this is intuition and some of this yeah, is exactly. data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found that when you had uh, there's a there's a there's a, there's, a, there's different. First of all, there's different technologies for downdraft, right? So there's some where it's it's like just in the middle. For example, uh, of a four-hour burner mm-hmm. uh, setup, and there'll be like a, a grate in the middle, and then it sucks down from there, so that it's kind of equidistant from the two sides. Okay. Sometimes it'll be along the back, mm-hmm. so it's only close to two of the burners, but farther from the other two burners. And sometimes it'll be a little pop-up thing, mm-hmm. right? On the back, usually. The, usually on the back, the back will pop up, so you're actually sucking from maybe five or six or eight inches above where the burners are. Okay. So. Anything where it's adjacent to the burners, um, you're going to pull in more of the combustion products than if it's somewhere else. Right? Like not if, more than uh, if it were so above it, the so, so you have a you have a downdraft in the back. You use your front burners. It's going to do almost nothing for the combustion products. Right. In terms of what you're cooking, we haven't done that test, so I can't tell you. Hmm. Okay, but usually the release point for what you're cooking is much higher, so it's going to be worse. Right. So, yeah, exactly. uh, so, w- and and again, it's the geometry, right? You got this hot plume coming up, yeah. and you're trying to bend that thing down into the 
into the surface, uh, that doesn't work so well. Not okay? without a lot of volume, so, so which is noisy. It, it's what it is. It, it is again helpful for the burners adjacent. If it's working really well for the burners adjacent, that you're gonna you're gonna affect the the burners, right? You're gonna see the burners Suck kind the of flame off. Yeah, basically, right. So you have to be careful about that. Um, so so it's not great, but it is. It's the way to think about it is what it is is it's ventilation. It's actually not. It's not equivalent to a range hood. <laughs> it's, it's ventilation. It's more equivalent. It's more. It's more equivalent to 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 putting a a, a ventilation fan anywhere else in your kitchen. And actually, if I had to choose, okay, so it depends on the, it does depend somewhat on the uh, floor plan, okay, but if you have, if you, we don't build really enclosed kitchens anymore, okay, right. So so so, so that's that's like it's almost silly to b- bother to say this, but if you had an enclosed kitchen, no doubt the fan would be way better on the ceiling than mm-hmm. uh, on the cooktop, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Because the Hot gas are going to go up. You pull them out of the ceiling, even in an open kitchen. Now, if you have a, if it's like a really high, if it's a ten or twelve foot ceiling, then maybe not. But if you have, let's say, an eight or a nine foot ceiling, okay, I, I would still say that um, if it's gas and it's adjacent and it's popping up, you're better off with the downdraft, okay? So a pop up downdraft. Better off then than putting it in the ceiling. Because because if you can put it, you can put it in the ceiling too, right? And when you put it in the ceiling, then the plume goes up, and the plume's going to be spreading around. But then you're going to be sucking from a place that's if you put it in the ceiling just above, right? I haven't done the the, the computational fluid dynamics to figure out right. just how. So you're saying you miss so much of the plume that you. But might but, the, but what I'm saying is you may be better off putting that. 400 CFM, because usually the downdrafts are higher airflow, right? So if you were putting 400 CFM on the ceiling versus on the cooktop, you, you for, for, for the cooking pollutants, you may be better off putting it up there than down here, okay? Because at least, at least the plume is going in that direction, and then you're trying to, like, pull in from the plume. So I don't know what, what the capture efficiency is there. It's going to be low, but... For what you're cooking on the downdraft, again, if it's if it's just on the surface, it's not a pop up, but just on the surface, uh, I don't think your 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 effectiveness is going to be very high for what you're cooking. Mm-hmm. If it's a pop up and you're cooking right next to it, then probably a little better, and you, you can probably see a little bit too, right? So like so that means pop up and you're using the back burner. Pop up and you're using the burner that's next to the pop mm-hmm. up. Again, probably way mm-hmm. be- way better than nothing. Uh, and it is still ventilation, mm-hmm. so go ahead and use it. And uh, but if you can put a range hood, it's much, much, much better to put an actual hood above it. So that was a very nicely politically correct way of, of saying that downdraft isn't as good, but you you said it uh, in a nuanced way. Generally speaking, avoid downdraft, but. Uh, it can be as effective on the back burner if you're cooking near it. I wouldn't say it's as effective, but it can be substantially helpful. Yeah, and, and I guess all this <laughs> goes to, uh, all this is still better than nothing, which is still happening. All right, so we're going to move beyond cooking now. I just want to capture a couple more ideas that came up while you're talking. One is the grease traps, those screens that are in the range hoods. Those should get cleaned. Those should, you can clean them in the dishwasher. I don't think you ever need to clean those things. <laughs> yeah, clean the grease screens. Exactly. And um, using cook, I mean, using um, lids actually is a big sure. benefit right there. Sure. 
uh, I want to talk about air purifiers and um, indoor air quality monitors. Oh, yeah, my I favorite. I want to go relatively quickly. And then we got to talk about your survey. Are portable room air cleaners effective at improving indoor air quality in the room that they're in? Many are. And, and the only brands, I won't name a brand, but I'll name an organization. So the Association for Home Appliance Manufacturers, A-H-A-M. A-H-A-M. And I, I, I think, are they an org? I think they're com. So aham.com. Figure it out. I think yeah, it's an org. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay, great. Uh, so, so if you go to their website, they have um, they have certified clean air delivery rates. There you go, CADR. Okay? That was on my list. So the clean air delivery rates are CADR, and and then and then they have some guidance. I think they say your CADR should be whatever it is, two thirds of your square feet of your room. Okay, so uh, follow their guidance, and if you pick a product that they've verified that they certify has a clean air delivery rate. Uh, and you follow the guidance and sizing, you should be good. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, so, so that's the simplest I'll say. Uh, there's okay, lots of brands and models mm-hmm. that work. Uh, they have different sizes. The only other thing I'll say is actually um, th- what differentiates is sort of filter capacity, cost, uh, noise level, and energy. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would always recommend for people, there's, there's plenty of uh, Energy Star rated products out there. Okay, I won't mention the model and brand, but I recently went to Costco and bought the one that they had on their shelf, which was $130, and it came with a couple of replacement filters, and was an Energy Star model, and it's good for rooms up to, I don't know, 350 square feet or something, ballpark. But they uh, sold a lot of those during the fires. Uh, well, they, they actually, yeah, they, they, Costco is a good company in a lot of ways, but they moved, um, they moved, uh, product actually to the areas that were most affected by the fire. So we didn't even, they, they took them off the shelves of my local Costco. We were pretty badly affected, but we weren't the worst. So they moved them around to get them to the places where they were needed most, which I thought was pretty cool. Wow. Uh, and, and maybe other companies did that too, so I don't want to, you know, right. in any way impugn other companies. But, uh, but okay, so, so you can get models for $150, you can buy... $150, $180, you can buy a model that will clean a pretty big room Right, 350 square feet is a pretty big room. Maybe it's 360, whatever, but mm-hmm. pretty big room. Um, and 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 that and 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 often those those uh, sizing functions are kind of at the highest speed. The highest speed is maybe a little noisier than what you want. So what I recommend is getting something. Uh, you can downsize a little. Bit. So so a lot of times they'll tell you what the CADR is on each on each setting. Right. So ideally, you get one that provides enough clean air at the a medium setting so you can run it much quieter right. and not be you know annoyed by it uh, and then so 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 but the other thing is to, so pay attention to the, how noisy they are uh, because if they're too noisy you're not going to use it or you're going to use it at a lower same speed same thing is true for range hoods same thing is true for range hoods um, and and the other place where they're different these uh, air pure portable air purifiers is the cost of the replacement filters and how often you need to replace them so for example uh, IQ Air makes really great products. They're very expensive, high-end products, but they're really, they work really well. And, and their filters are much more expensive, but they, you need to change them much less often, mm-hmm. right? So, so you got to pay, you got to and I'm not saying that, the, that it's a better deal than somebody else. I'm just saying pay attention to yeah, that, uh, both what the cost is for the replacement filters. Sometimes the, sometimes the unit will be less expensive, but the filters will be more expensive, yeah. right? Um, and and so how often you need to change them, how much they cost, how easy they are to get, right? Can you just like get them on Amazon or will the company ship them out to you, whatever it is? Mm-hmm. So 
ideally pay attention to those seizures, but but start with the AHAB and clean air yeah. delivery rates mm-hmm. and size them appropriately for the room, and 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 you know they only work if you actually turn them on. Very good. And just to touch on the CADR, I mean, basically a lot of these manufacturers will say. Oh, we do HEPA quality filtration, but you find out it's only at 50 CFM on low speed. So you, yeah, you're getting very clean air, but you're getting a very small amount of it. So with all the filtration products, this is the filter for your home furnace, your, your home AC system, your forced air system, the the portable, the, the standalone portable air purifiers, all the marketing of, you know, f- you know, best for allergens, best for this, best for that, I, I would say... You can almost ignore all that stuff. That's all marketing. So for the portable ones, just look at the cl- it's the clean air delivery rate for tobacco smoke, mm-hmm. right? They offer there's some different there's different mm-hmm. they, do uh, pollen. Diff- they do pollen whatever else. But if it's and and actually if, if pollen is your interest, if allergies is your interest, then pay attention to that one. But mm-hmm. for like what we think of as air pollution, so particulate matter from outside, certainly the wildfire smoke. Look at the one for tobacco smoke because that's the relevant one. And then for your home filters, right, so your filters for your home forced air system or your ERV, uh, there's a couple different ratings. Uh, there's the MERV ratings. Your, your, your listeners will all be familiar with these. Uh, yeah. uh, there's, we did a whole uh, Honeywell has FPR. Mm. Uh, those are the ones you get at Home Depot. And, uh, and the 3M Filtrate has, uh, I think Numbers. it's an NPR. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and there's some rough translations. And you know, if you get up to the FPR 9 or 10 or the NPR, I think it's like above 2,000. Right. And, and, love and they switch all the numbers. And MERV, and MERV it's, you know, 13, 12 or 13 or above is where you're getting a really good level of filtration. Uh, you don't need to go to HEPA. In fact, HEPA filter systems are often have higher pressure drop and, and sometimes they're installed as bypass systems. So you're actually not getting a lot of flow. So you want something that's low pressure drop, so you get good flow through it. Usually, uh, they work much better if you're if you're building a new home. See if you can get your builder to it, it, set it up, or your builder of mechanical contractor set it up to hold a four inch filter is really the best. Absolutely, okay. four or five inch deep. Um, you can get them online. They're a little more expensive, but they last a lot longer. So you know, and and they're much more robust in terms of pressure drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if not that, then even a two inch filter. So the uh, California Air Resources Board was really interested in getting better filtration in California homes. They work with the uh, California Energy Commission for the new Title 24 standards, and the, and the, the requirement now is for a two-inch filter slot in new homes, and they're supposed to have a MERV 13 filter installed at, at the start. Now, people are going to change that, but the idea of the two-inch filter slot is that it's it's much easier to get low pressure drop with two inch than it is with one inch. Absolutely. Right? So that's a big advantage. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean, you know, the, 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 from manufacturing... You can still screw it up. You can still yes. screw it up, <laughs> but, but uh, two, four inch is better. The problem with four inch, of course, is that it won't fit in a lot of places where you have the return... If you have a if you have a, re, a, a filter at the return mm-hmm. grill, right? There's often not four inches there. Yeah, yeah. But, but you, you can, can get two inch MERV sixteen. But now. you can always mm-hmm. get two inch, and MERV sixteen is better. But again, I think MERV thirteen is fine. You need fine. to manage the you know, it's, pressure it's, you, drop. You, you can get you get pretty high removal from MERV thirteen, and you get the it's kind of like the cleaner delivery rate. It's a it's a function of how much removal you're getting with each pass. And then how much air you're moving through it, right? right? So with the MERV 13, you can reliably know you're going to get more air moving through it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry as much with the pressure drop. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and then you get a high yeah. effectiveness. Basically. Yeah, we, it's so much to talk about. We, I guess we should just get close to wrapping up yeah. here. But yeah. okay, we're going to move on to the air, to quality the air quality monitors. But I wanted to just comment that there are, when it comes to marketing, there are a lot of products with like plasma emissions and ozone emissions and super oxygenated. And you weren't talking about those. You were talking about, you know, maybe some activated carbon or alumina and then good capture for particles, right? Yeah, so so glad you asked about the ozone and, and plasma emissions. The, the first thing I'd say is be careful with ozone. You, you do not want to buy a product that generates ozone. The California Air Resources Board has done a lot of work on this. They set regulations in California. Interesting. In California, you it's illegal to buy a unit that produces any substantial amount of ozone. Wow. Okay? So... Um, Look and make sure that the unit you're buying does not do not produce buy an ozone producer. Think of it as a pollutant producer. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. do not buy something that produces ozone. Period. Um, the plasma is a little different. So plasma or ion generation. So there's two ways that that happens. The idea there is that by generating ions, you, you will charge particles. And we talked earlier about how particles will actually deposit on the materials in your house. Okay, and the more charged those particles are, the more Quickly, they deposit right. So if you could, if you can effectively charge particles, they you can actually de- increase the rate that they're removed inside your house. Now, there's a there's a potential downside to this, which is those charged particles. If you breathe them in, they may be more harmful f- to you. Okay. So, and I don't, I'm not an expert to know, and we haven't done the analysis to know like does the what's the cost benefit there right like the cost the risk <laughs> risk of increased risk of breathing in these charged yeah, particles yeah. versus the benefit of having taken um, but I, I wouldn't in general our, our, our advice to people is don't try to do chemistry in the air in your house right. okay so there's another technology called photocatalytic oxidation for removing VOCs right where um, again there's there, you're, you're trying to like oxidize the VOCs to be carbon dioxide, which works great if it all works properly, okay, that you take these mm-hmm. organic compounds and you turn them into CO2. The problem is if, that, if anything goes wrong where that reaction doesn't go all the way through, then you're left with these oxygenated organics that are more harmful for you than the chemicals that you started with, okay? okay? So we said don't, don't, don't experiment that in your home. Leave that for the chemists to play around in their labs. Uh, so, so the plasma, though, there's another way where they do it where they will actually try to charge the particles uh, before the filter, mm-hmm. right? And, and if you do that, then particles are removed more effectively It'll in the filter. the filter. Okay, so mm-hmm. if, if, if you can figure this out, if the device is charging the particles before the filter, I'd say go ahead and do it. If it's charging the particles, if it's just, charge, if it's just pushing charges out into the air, you don't want that. Now, those devices that just push charges out into the air are not going to have high clean air delivery rates, whatever. So so I think if you stick with the clean air delivery rate, you're probably be in pretty good shape. Okay, good. Um, I'm glad I asked. Yeah. Okay. That's the... All right. Last topic, then. Thank you so much, Brett. And thanks for bearing with us. This is a long interview. The um, There's a lot of indoor air quality, residential grade indoor air quality uh, monitors available. Um, just leave it at that. What are your thoughts about those? And oh, geez. So uh, okay. So I know you've tested some. So we did. We if you go to LBL's website, there's a we'll link do a there, link to that. and um, the paper is published in Indoor Air, and it, it will be available to everybody soon. Right now, it's probably still limited um, distribution, but uh, you can see the highlights. Though uh, the short of it is that there are now uh, low cost 
sensors for some pollutants of interest, and people are packaging these sensors into devices that will uh, transmit the data to the web, essentially, through uh, your home Wi-Fi, and then make the data available to you to see on some kind of uh, app or smartphone app or, or on the internet. Exactly. Okay. Um, some of these devices will have dig- readouts on the device. Uh, some of these devices will save the data so you can go back and look at it later. Um, some of these devices will uh, allow, some of these companies will allow you to download data from their uh, web servers um, uh, with some limited resolution. So there's all these things out there. Yeah. Now the question is, what, what can you what can you measure? What are the, what sensors are available for you to gain useful information? Because mm-hmm. if it's not accurate and reliable, then it could be misinformation mm-hmm. as much as information. So one of the things, one of the uh, examples of a, a pollutant that quote unquote pollutant, or, or let's say one of the examples of something that is reported through these devices that is not informative is something called CO2 equivalents. And I won't mention the names of the devices that are doing this, but they have a sensor that's not actually measuring CO2, it's measuring something else. And then it is it is to derive through, signal. Through, yeah. through some association that they've derived saying what they think the CO2, how that is equivalent to a CO2 level. CO2 is something we exhale. CO2 is really helpful as an indicator of good ventilation. Okay, right. so uh, our, our, our building ventilation standards, like in commercial buildings, are designed to keep CO2 levels below about 1,000 or 1,100 ppm, okay? Right. Uh, so uh, you can use those you know, ballpark numbers in your house as well. If you're, if you're keeping below there, you're in pretty good shape. If you're getting above there, you maybe want to ventilate a little, little bit more. Um, so having a device that has a CO2 sensor in it that, that's accurate is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of devices that do, not all of them, but it has to be a true CO2 sensor. Uh, the big one that was particulate matter, PM 2.5, so there's a lot of devices now. There are good PM 2.5 sensors that these companies can buy at bulk for, let's say, $25 a sensor. Wow. Okay? Maybe even a little cheaper than that, uh, depending on how, what the bulk is, but let's say $20 to $30 a sensor. Okay, so then they're packaging these things into these devices, um, and those, they're not precise but they, they're, they're accurate in the sense that for a lot of sources of particulate matter, they can give you a number that's, let's say, within a factor of two. Hmm. Okay, so it, it's, it's helpful <laughs> to... Well, okay, but it's helpful to... Well, it's you, better than nothing. You, better do, than no feedback. you do a blower door test, okay? And how, how accurate is your blower door test? To, to normal conditions. Okay, how accurate is your duct sealing test, right? Okay, great. Point. Okay, so... Or even airflow measurements. Okay, airflow measurements, right? So yeah. some of those are better than a factor of two, but still... Getting in the right ballpark is really helpful. Okay, yeah, so these point. get you in the right ballpark, and they can also help you see if you're what you're doing is effective. So I mentioned this wildfire smoke. Well, a lot of people were doing things. We were telling people things that they could do that may or may not be effective. So you live in an old house. You have a forced air furnace. We're saying, okay, put a better filter in your forced air furnace mm-hmm. and run it in fan only mode. But beware, your ducts may be so leaky. That, that by running your furnace, your forced air furnace, you're bringing in more outdoor air to detriment than you are filtering yeah. to benefit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, if you have one of these monitors, then you could you see, know. I turn on my, for- my forced air furnace, is our particle levels in my house going down or up? Yeah. Okay, great. 
I have an indicator that this is doing something or not doing something. And, and, if it's, and if you have the same one of those inside and outside of your house, then you can see, okay, how yeah. well am I doing? We started out talking about inside-outside ratios, right? So you can see that. So I'd say there are good devices that cost under $300 for a particular matter. Um, and, and depends on what your application is. So some of, there are some, there's a, a one, I'll mention a few names because these are ones that we've tested that have worked well. I'm not endorsing these products, but I can just, there's a couple that I can tell you I know work reasonably well. Uh, there's a company called Purple Air. Uh, they make, their, their base model is actually for outdoors. And it comes in, they build it into a PVC cap, hmm. uh, which is kind of cool. And, and uh, it's made, for, you know, outdoor, oh, outdoor uh, power supply, et cetera. And they have a nice map on their website where you can see air quality around, and they have some conversion factors. So that's a good device for outdoors. They make an indoor model too now. So um, that's a good thing where you could buy one for indoors and one for outdoors and see using the same sensor what the comparison indoor and outdoor is. Mm -hmm. uh, an another one that we tested um, is a company mm -hmm. called Air Visual. Well, it's, it's, it's owned by IQ Air, but it's Air Visual Pro is the is the is the model now. Um, that one has uh, it's, it's really you can put it outdoors, but it's not built for rain protection, so you need to put it under something. So if if, if you can put it in a rain protected outdoor space, they work fine outdoors. Um, that measures particulate matter and CO two. Now, and they all measure temperature and humidity as well. No VOCs on that. Okay, so no VOCs on that one, but 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 that's helpful indoors because then you can also see. And that's a true CO2 sensor, so you can see if you're adequately ventilating. Uh, and then that has a nice feature that has a visual display. So you can, if you don't want to have to pull out your smartphone to see what you're doing, you just look across the room and you can just kind of glance at it and see where you are. And that one is, is linked up with uh, the local air, they link up with the local air monitoring stations, like the EPA air monitoring stations. Mm -hmm. So it tells you what the, is being measured with a regulatory monitor close to you, yeah. okay, which might not be exactly what's at your house, but at least it's something that's in your area, and then tells you what's inside. So there, and there's some others as well. Um, there's a lot of movement, so a lot of these uh, uh, companies are developing new products. Uh, I know that Fubot's coming out with, a, they're going to come out with a new product sometime soon. Yeah. Uh, their old product did pretty well for particulate matter when we tested it as well. Airbeam was another one that did pretty well when we tested it previously. Um, uh, uh, again, lots of new products coming mm -hmm. out. There were a couple that we tested that didn't do well, have new products coming out that we haven't tested yet, so I won't mention those names until we test them. Um, but uh, uh, for two to $300, you can buy something which will give you some indication, at least a particular matter, temperature, humidity, and, and if it has the CO, a, a true CO2 sensor, uh, you can get some sense of ventilation. Uh, if you're a person who loves numbers and data and you know seeing what's going on, then I, I recommend them. Yeah, I like them. Yeah, yeah. I think the the ultimate value for the average homeowner is going to be the the story behind the data, which is oh wow, when I fry this fish, I see that my air quality changes, and when I run the range hood, I see that it changes again. The my, story. Uh -huh. Yeah, my my colleague and other good friend Lou Harriman. Um, he, he bought one of these things, and he wanted to demonstrate to uh, his partner how, um, his, it was his wife, I think, uh, how uh, the, you know, the cooking really does generate 
pollutants and using the range here was beneficial. I don't know if he needed, I don't know if he actually needed to demonstrate that, but he, he's an engineer and he really loved to, he loved to be able to see that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was a little bit more dismayed though that they had, they had uh, their old model had the CO2 equivalents and he's like, okay, I don't think this is quite right. It's not really CO2 and, and they don't say it's CO2, they say it's CO2 equivalent. So, yeah, um, yeah so see, seeing it is, it, it, it helps you create the story. Yeah, absolutely. Right? All right, that's all the questions I had. I was going to ask you, you know, what else, your current research, what are you tracking, but I think in the interest of time, unless there's something fascinating you want to share briefly. Absolutely. There's definitely something I want to share, which is that um, we are, one of the big questions is uh, what's the indoor air quality in new homes and whether any of these high-performance home programs make a big difference. Now, we know based on lots of research that the elements that we're putting into these high-performance homes work, okay? But what we don't know is the experience of the people who are in those homes. Mm -hmm. And we take the experience of the occupants very seriously, right? So perceptions matter. Um, so we put together a, a survey. It's, it's, it's unfortunately rather long, but, uh, but, it, but it asks for a lot of really meaningful elements of the home and, and, and people's experience and what they do in their home, too. Uh, so the website is iaqsurvey.lbl.gov. iaqsurvey, you'll do it on your website, .lbl.gov. And uh, if, you have, if your home is built since 2010, please go and check out the survey. Tell your friends about it. And uh, we're hoping that in a couple of years, we'll maybe even, well, we're hoping, we're hoping that within a year or so, we'll have uh, some good data where we can see whether uh, these homes that are built with the high performance features actually produce air quality that people perceive as better in addition to it having lower concentrations of pollutants. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah. And how much is meaningful data? How many survey respondents do you think? We'll, we'll see what we get. We're, we're, um, there's another... You asked what else we're doing is new. The Building America program, uh, we get a lot of funding from Building America. Uh, it's a great program. It's an industry-oriented program. So it, it's designed to help the industry build better houses, to provide the information that is needed for the industry to do that. Um, they're interested in the same question of saying, okay, what's, what is the indoor air quality currently in new homes? Yeah. Looking both at homes that are built with mechanical ventilation and homes that are not. So the, the study is happening in uh, three parts of the country, actually four parts of the country. So the southeast U.S., the two climate zones of the southeast. Uh, it's happening in uh, Oregon, Colorado, and it will be happening starting soon in Il- uh, Illinois. Um, so around the country. And the idea is to look at ventilation equipment use and indoor air quality perceptions so that people in that study are doing the same survey and then we're measuring a bunch of pollutants. Uh, so it's it's measured pollutant levels, equipment use, uh, and, and satisfaction mm-hmm. in these new homes that are with and without mechanical ventilation. And very cool, we're doing, uh, as part of that, two other things we're doing. Uh, some of those homes we're going to measure with and without the ventilation operating. Hmm. So we're going to see what that does for the pollutant levels. Right. Um, and uh, the EPA, with some co-funding from EPA, we're also looking at the effectiveness of radon-resistant new construction. So that's part of the EPA Indoor Air Plus program. Uh, the idea being you set the home up, in, in especially in radon zone one areas, so ra- areas where, where you tend to have high radon. When you build a house... Okay, you you set it up for active radon protection, but you don't put the fan in. This is a passive system. 
preliminary research or prior research has shown these things to be pretty effective, uh, but we want to uh, try to nail that down a little bit better and also determine how much benefit you get from that past event. Awesome. So there's, some, there's a radon element to it. There's the with and without ventilation, baseline indoor air quality in these new homes. Um, and then that follows a study we did in California recently where we looked at 70 new homes uh, that were built with the code-compliant mechanical ventilation. And in those homes, just to highlight, we found that uh, the homes all had compliant systems in them uh, for general ventilation. Uh, most of them had compliant kitchen ventilation, although some of the microwaves didn't move as much air as they're supposed to. Right. And uh, we found th- these homes were built with the low formaldehyde materials. We found um, generally lower pollutant levels than we saw in California homes 10 years ago <laughs> and uh, much lower formaldehyde levels. And even the uh, nitrogen dioxide, these are homes with gas, even the nitrogen dioxide levels were lower than hmm. uh, we'd seen it, uh, in previous studies with gas homes. So, so these homes built with the code-compliant ventilation when people use them uh, really works well. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All righty. Thank you, Brett. That was great. What a feast of ideas. Ah, did you catch the cooking pun? <laughs> and thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>